Welcome back to Expert Instruction, the Teach by Design podcast, where we dive deeper into the research surrounding student behavior by talking with the people implementing these practices, where they work, and with the students they support. I'm Megan Cave. And I'm Nadia Sampson. It's May. You guys, the end of the school year is upon us. Maybe some of you, it's like right around the corner. And somehow, simultaneously, it feels like the home stretch. And also, like maybe there's not enough time to do all the things that need to be done. Be honest. <laughs> Personally, the last few weeks have been a real sprint. And boy, am I tired. But here we are. We here keep, we are. We keep going. Here we, here we are. May is also Mental Health Awareness Month. And this year's theme is look around, look within. Mm -hmm. This is asking us to all consider the places we take up space, like our neighborhoods, our offices, our grocery stores, the morning commute, schools, and how those spaces affect our mental health. Mm -hmm. Our environment and our mental health, we know this, are intricately linked. Yes, they go together, which brings us to this episode. Over on our Teach by Design article this month, we introduced to y'all the Interconnected Systems Framework, or ISF. Essentially, the ISF is a process for integrating school mental health systems, practices, and data into your existing PBIS framework, which makes it so efficient to get students those supports. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into that conversation by sharing two interviews with you. And first up is Megan Schultz. Megan is the community coordinator for an organization in Lane County called the 15th Night. Locally, the 15th Night is an organization that's committed to serving unaccompanied students experiencing homelessness by connecting them with the school and community resources that they need. She's going to tell us a little bit more about that work. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. So we wanted to talk with you a little bit about the things that your organization is doing and the ways that you're able to help students get access and get connected with the supports and the services and the resources that they need to keep being successful, not just in school, but to be thriving members within the community. So so you're, you're a member of the 15th Night here in Eugene. So talk to us a little bit about what that is. Tell us, what's 15th Night? How did it start? Yeah. What was the problem you were trying to solve? And why was this the solution you went with? Yeah, so 15th Night started back in two, late 2015, early mm-hmm. 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really a um, effort by our former Eugene city manager, John Reese, who was trying to figure out as a community, how do we start to address this issue of homelessness? And he had a conversation with Looking Glass Community Services, which is one of our community's um, longest standing at-risk youth organizations. And they shared an observation that they had made that a youth who is new to the street, that we as a community have a narrow window of time to intervene before they're likely to experience chronic homelessness. Okay. And that narrow window of time was two weeks. And so when John heard that, he said, well, as a community, how do we ensure that no youth would ever have to choose to spend a 15th night on the street? So that's how the name 15th night came to be. Gotcha. It's really no nights. It's yes. No nights, right? Yeah. Right? And so this is 15th night is really a 
truly a collaborative community effort to try and address youth homelessness. Um, that is our main focus, but it also is what led us to the schools. Yes, um, of course. So, so when we started, you know, when you think about youth homelessness in, in a community, it can be really overwhelming um, when you start looking at the numbers and what are the issues and the um, challenges that um, are, you know, youth who are navigating homelessness are facing or how did they even get there? And, you know, do we focus on prevention or intervention? Like, where do you even start, right? Yes, the, the um, problem is huge. Right, and so mm -hmm. it's like information paralysis. When you yes, we talk about that all the time in our work where you can, there's so much, there's so many aspects to something that you can talk about homelessness, but you're like, I could approach this from so many different directions. So where do you start? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think people, uh, we get afraid of like, are we starting in the wrong place? Yes. The answer is you just need to start something. Just do it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, what they chose to do was start with students who are identified by the schools as unaccompanied. So there are different definitions. The Department of Education has different definitions of homelessness for students K, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade. Okay. And so you can be like homeless with your family, living in a shelter, living in mm. a hotel, living in a car, mm. um, doubled up, which means you're living with another family or gotcha. someone, right? Um, well, one of the definitions is unaccompanied and unaccompanied means that you are a student who is navigating school life and homelessness without your parent or guardian. Mm -hmm. So you're basically doing it on your own. You're on your own. You're on your own. And in when we started the 15th night, uh, we were really just focused on, on the two school districts here in Eugene, which are 4J and Bethel school districts. And between those two school districts back when we started, there were about 390 unaccompanied students identified by those schools. So there is a federal act called the McKinney-Vento Act. Yes. Tell us about that a little bit. So the McKinney-Vento Act, in a nutshell, protects the educational rights of students who have been identified as homeless. So there are special protections around educational rights for those students, and there's access to some um, resources and services um, if you've been identified. Okay. The trick is being identified. Yeah. And the school districts have to have somebody um, in the bigger school districts are actual staff people, and that's what their job is. They are the McKinney-Vento liaisons. For to identify children. students who I, yeah, I was really curious about that as like how are students identified so there's they self-identify or these folks that it's complicated okay yeah. I okay. mean um so when you're registering for school you may or your family may self-identify as that we are experiencing homelessness or we're unstably housed um, but when we're talking about the unaccompanied, they don't see themselves as homeless. 
like they would not say I'm homeless. What they would say is I got kicked out three weeks ago and I can't get back into my house and I'm staying on my cousin's couch. Uh, I'm living in my car. My parents left town and I'm staying with a friend, friend. but I don't know how long. So because they're staying in somebody's house. Yeah. They have a house where they're sleeping. Right. Um, or, you know, I slept in my car a couple of nights. I'm not homeless. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. So it's really tricky, but the schools are pretty um, savvy. They have their ways. Yeah. Listening for certain words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, things start happening. They're like, huh, I wonder, I wonder if that kid's, you know, struggling, that student's struggling. So our goal was to work with the two school districts um, really focused on what could the community do to support the unaccompanied students in those districts to stay engaged in school and not end up on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, the very first thing we did was put together a youth action council. I love that so much of your work has been centered and started with kids that you didn't just try and, and, uh, put in place things that you thought would work, but you actually included student voice, youth voice in the work that you were doing right from the beginning. I think that that was like key to the whole. It's so smart. Mm -hmm. Because you're right. Like we may know things like professionally because of our experiences or just, you know, because we're adults um, or intellectually, you know, uh, and then you find out like, that's not how it works. That's mm-hmm. just not how it works. Yeah. You think kids. you have an idea of what, what, how it's going to go. And right. then the kid says to you, that's, oh, you think that's how it happens, huh? Oh, you think that's how it happens? No, exactly. Let me, let me welcome you to real life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 This that's is my reality. Hard. That's right. not how it works. Engaging right. the population that you're trying to support is critical to any of the work that we do. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just, we have to be doing that on all levels everywhere. Mm -hmm. No matter who we're trying to support, um, we need to be talking to them. I agree. And and they started, oh, go ahead. Keep going. And listening. Yes. Talk all we want. Give them the space to share their story. Exactly. Um, It's not going to make a difference. It's just, anyway. So we have a youth action council that started with us. They're still in, you know, six years later, however same kids. Later. They're not kids we, anymore. We do They're have like some young adults. Now. We do have some oh, what they call you know the OGs. Yeah. Um, but a lot of yeah, no, they've graduated out. Got you. you know. Um. Anyway, so these are students who did drop out of school and lived on the streets. I see. Students who were currently in school and navigating homelessness, and then students who care about the issue, never been homeless. So allies. Oh. And we thought it was really important to understand what allies were thinking Mm -hmm. and their beliefs around their peers who may be experiencing homelessness um, so that, you know... these assumptions and beliefs that we have, some of them are right and some of them aren't. And so if we knew what they were thinking, we would, we could help address that. And, you know, um, so, so we have this group 
Um, they meet twice a, at least twice a month. Um, they do a lot of work. So sometimes they, they meet, you know, more often than that. Yeah. Um, and so the first thing that that group did was try, we asked them two questions. Um, what resources and services had you known about them and been able to ask for them while you were still in school navigating homelessness may have helped you stay connected to school? And if you did drop out and you ended up on the street, same thing. What resources and services had you known about them, been able to ask for them, may have helped you get off the street more quickly and re-engage with your education. So um, what the Youth Action Council did was develop a survey that they took out to schools and and the street, literally. Yeah, imagine. Survey on the street. And then the adults. So the other thing we did was surround that Youth Action Council with leaders and influencers and people that cared about the issue who were willing to listen and find the yes. So it couldn't be, well, that didn't work before. So we're not going to do that again. Or that doesn't make mm. any sense. It was like, you tell us what we need to do or what yeah. the problem is. And we, yeah. yes, 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 yes. We will figure it out. So yeah. you get the, pe the right people in the room, which really can literally be anybody. I was just going to ask, who were the adults that were surrounding this work? Well, initially it was... It was like, and, and there's still, you know, different people at the time, but like school superintendents. Um, oh, you immediately I, got buy-in from the district. We immediately, we had public safety. We had, um, you know, the city government. We had county. We had service providers, United Way. Um, Incredible. Just by identifying that this was a problem and you wanted to solve it, people mm -hmm. were like, I'm in. Yes. Incredible. That's Nad, don't you think that's rare? Especially yes. at the school districts? Don't you think that's rare? Yes. That there I, are I often really do. jumps that you have to make in right. order for that to happen. That's incredible. Good for that you. That it wasn't you. seen as a, this add-on initiative that right. it's like nobody's got time for that. We can't do that. Um, I think is is pretty amazing. Pretty yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, especially since we when we started, we had no idea like what we were doing, what, was it, what does it mean? What is right. convening these people, convening this Youth Action Council and trying to figure it out from there. And right. we always say without leadership, without that leadership, without the people that can actually enforce or um, provide resources or, or do that kind of decision-making, things stall. If they're yeah. not in the room, it's like, oh, well, I have to go ask so-and-so and then things right. stall. And we see that all the time in yes. schools and certainly out in the world. So yes. yeah, great. Right. And I think also that the problem was specific. It wasn't mm -hmm. youth homelessness. It wasn't even right. just students who were homeless. It was right. a specific group of students. A demographic within right. that population. And mm -hmm. I think it felt doable. Yeah. Right? It felt like we can get our arms around this. Yeah. You know, we can get some wins off, you know, from this. And I think that that's probably why a lot of the leaders able to even get off the ground. Right. That, that came in. So anyway, so we had this survey asking those questions that the youth were doing. And then 
we, the adults did it with like schools and library. I mean, anybody that we, you know, service providers, anybody we thought was having connection with um, these unaccompanied students. So between, you know, us, the adults doing the surveying and the youth doing the surveying, we came up with this list of 65 different things. (laughs) Crazy how long this list is. Yeah. It's the easy stuff like food, shoes, clothes. Sure. Yeah. And it's the The basic stuff, you know, what was um, the hard stuff and what the hard stuff still is housing, shelter, um, drug and alcohol treatment, family mediation. Mm -hmm. So we had this list and then what we did is we went out into our community and we showed um, service providers and organizations, anyone basically, and said, here's this list of 65 (laughs) things. And we're trying to support these students in Fort J. Bethel who are unaccompanied. Do you do any of these things? And would you do them for these specific students? And I'm not lying. Everybody said yes. Yeah. Like every organization everybody said yes. Wow. Um, and you know, we were coming with nothing, no funding, nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Just to, just to ask, like, would you, yeah, Yeah, would you? And it was like, uh, everybody said, yeah. And they would look at the 65 things and they say, well, we do these three things. That's awesome. We may do them for a different population of kids, but we can do them. We could do them. Yeah. So sure. We're set up to do this stuff. So why not do the, do that for these kids? Yeah. Right. So that, that ended up building this network, which is now about 40 to 50 organizations that are a part of this huge network. Does it continue to grow? I imagine it would. Oh, every day. Like I get emails every day from people. I, what I say now, and I said this at the beginning was, um, we need everyone to play in this sandbox. <laughs> yeah. And anyone and everyone is welcome to do so. I, as the you know community coordinator, I just have to figure out where to plug you in. That's yeah. my job. So we have the 65 things. We have a network. We know yes. what students, right? And then we're like, yes. the other thing we know is that if a student is vulnerable enough to ask somebody for help, that that person needs to be able to deliver because if they can't, then that student may never ask somebody again. And so our, we have one, you know, in our, in our heads, we have one chance. Yeah. Got one chance. And so what can the community do to make sure that if a student asks you for something that you are able the to deliver? Yes. Yeah. Um, so we, we reached out to our tech community here and said, Hey, how do we connect these students to this network of resources and services in real time? And they created some software for us. That's called the rapid access network or the RAN for short. And what it does is it works through a text message and an email. Is it an app? No, it's a web-based, you can do it. Like a form you fill out. Yeah. Well, yeah, kind of. Yeah, I guess it is. It's an online form. Um, So if you are a school counselor or you are a service provider in one of the organizations that we work with, 
and you have a student that says they need shoes and mental health services. Okay. You log into the RAN, you, and there's no confidential information shared. So it will say 15 year old male. Uh, yeah. Um, it may say the high school, like Churchill high school sure. uh, needs food and mental health services and send we, you know, you send it and they, we call an alert and it goes to any of those organizations that said they do that thing and mental health. Yeah. Nobody else gets it. Yeah. Just them. And then they can respond back in real time and they'll say, Hey, yeah, great. Uh, we have the student do X, Y, Z, or I can deliver this, or, um, we'll, we'll connect with a student about, you know, like it just happened to me at three 30. Yeah. It just happens in real time. Wow. Um, so, so is that, so that's like automated, they click the boxes and then it goes out automatically yeah. or someone's personing that. No, no. Gotcha. Okay. It just goes, it just goes. Um, so, so we, so we, um, started, we trained about 10 people, um, I mean, this happened really fast. So when you are listening to youth yes. and you have a specific goal and you have the people in the room who can make things happen, right? It's incredible, right? So within seven months, we were launching the RAN. From idea to... Yeah. Well, from, from, oh, we have a youth action council from that. Seven from months? That, yeah, about seven months. That's so unheard of. Um, so what we wanted to make sure it worked, right? yeah. <laughs> um, like for real, right. Yeah. Not yeah. Just us practicing on it. Um, and so we trained about a handful of people, um, actually from South Eugene high school. Yeah. Um, and some community providers about to use it. And I love the story of the first alert. <laughs> Tell us. So the first alert was actually sent on behalf of a South Eugene student who had come into the come into school with no shoes on their feet. It was pouring down rain. At the time, um, we had school resource officers in the in the buildings, and he went up to her and kind of was like, "Hey, what's going on?" And she was yeah. like, "Buzz off, leave me alone. Uh, I need to get to class. Just don't worry about me." Don't worry about me. And uh, he said, well, if I can get you some shoes, whatever, whatever, you know, she's just like, yeah, of course. Um, so he sent out the first alert for shoes. Yeah. And it went to um, Emerald Valley Boys and Girls Club because they had a big donation from Nike. Okay. It went to Junior League of Eugene because they have some gift cards. Yeah. And it went to Looking Glass Community Services because they have, you know, clothing closet that happened to have, you know, shoes. Shoes. So later in the day, he found her and said, Hey, listen, I actually did get some shoes and here, here are your choices. <laughs> yeah. You have options. And you have options, which is beautiful. And she said that she wanted to go to the boys and girls club, yeah. Emerald Valley boys and girls club. And I love that story for lots of reasons, but one of them is she never been to the boys and girls club. And he, and he actually took her, the school say, resource officer took her, yeah. <laughs> he took her. And so now she knows where it is, that it's a safe place that you can go. She's met a couple people at the, 
you know, boys and girls club. And then she got to pick out her own shoes. Right. Yeah. Um, plus later, you know, now she knows the school resource officer was a safe yes. person and, you know, he, it was shoes at the beginning. It wasn't shoes the next time I it bet. was something harder the next time, yeah. you know, um, and that's the beauty of the RAN. It's like, you know, we hope that you have options, that it's immediate access and that you can learn to trust enough that when it is the hard stuff, you can ask for the hard stuff. I think what you're doing is connecting kids to their larger school-wide community in ways that are super meaningful so that they can continue to be thriving members of that community and reach out when they need more help. And I think that's really wonderful. Yeah. One of the things that I'm just thinking about as you're talking, Megan, is Megan Schultz um, is um, (laughs) (laughs) MS um, Uh Uh is one of the things that I'm hearing too is there aren't these contingencies set up. It's like, you need shoes. I'll get you shoes. We're just going to get you shoes. You don't have to prove to me that you're going to come to school tomorrow, that you're going to go to all your classes. You're going to do this. That, it's like, you need shoes. I'm going to get you shoes. Yeah. And I think um, that is a, that can be a huge barrier for kiddos. It's like, we tell students a lot, well, you're going to have to do this for me if you want this. And which to me for basic essential needs, especially like that's insane. Yeah. That's insane. Yes. So I just, yeah, I just, um, I think that's so important. And I, I'm hearing that, especially when you're talking about public safety officers, where the experience may be very different for students and Mm -hmm. yeah, what an eye opener. So anyway, just really inspiring. And, and I'm still amazed. (laughs) I'm just kind of reeling from, um, this is is a real thing. Yeah. Um, Well, so, you know, so out in the community, and this still is true all these years later, we are still focused on our unaccompanied students, right? But once we got the RAN up and running back to the Youth Action Council, we're like, okay, what's next? What do we need to do? (laughs) Build on the win. Yeah. They said, well, you need to get into the schools and you need to help people understand what's helpful and what's hurtful when you are a student who's navigating homelessness. Okay. Okay. So we need to get into the schools. Well, what does that look like? I don't know. I have no (laughs) idea. Yeah. Um, So I, what we did is I just started knocking on, you know, uh, principal stores. Just show up. Hi, Megan, 15th night (laughs) youth action council. And of course this is craziness, right? <laughs> Especially during the school year. Mm-hmm. Um, and a South Eugene High School principal, who's now your 4J, our 4J superintendent, but mm-hmm. was then the principal, um, Dr. Andy Dye. He said, I'm game, let's figure this out. Okay. Let's, let's figure it out. And what we figured out right away is that whatever we did in the school had to be for any student who needed anything for any reason. It doesn't matter why you need it, including you do not have to be homeless. Yes. We call that a universal support, Megan. (laughs) Universal support. There's a name for that. Okay. We call it in our, in our world that just by showing up and being a member of our school, this is the kind of thing that you get. Yeah. Okay. And you receiving that support doesn't 
automatically mean you're homeless or you're yeah. this or you're that because it's, it's a universal support. It's so available everyone to everyone. Has access. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. well, I'm so glad to have a name for it. <laughs> Thank you. I seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's universal support. Who knew yeah. that? That's what we were yeah. doing, but that's what we were doing. And yes. So, okay, great. It's going to be anything, any, you know, you need anything for any reason. I'm like, I'm like, well, what do you have in your school? What resources do you have? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, nobody knows. Like nobody we've done these, we've done this work that I'm going to explain Okay. in every high school in four J's, um, will lamb it, um, Bethel Springfield, Cresswell, Mapleton, like doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, nobody knows there's not one person in the school that knows all the resources and services that are available to students in their school building. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. what we did was we just started interviewing people. We just posted like, up. What do you know is available? Yeah. To everybody, like the librarian, the, you know, cook, the football coach, yeah. the math teacher. And we would just say, tell us, tell us what you know. And we'll, yeah. we're just making a list. What do you wish you had that you don't have? Ah, uh, good question. For your students. What a good question to ask them. Cause I bet you every single one of them had an answer for you. Yes. What do you wish you had that you don't have for your students? And so you ask these two questions and you learn so much. Like you don't even, they just tell you everything. Yeah. Because somebody's listening and somebody's listening. Like I can't do anything. Sure. But I can write it down. We can can write it down. Yeah. We can see Um, how you could get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what that did for us is it helps us. Um, oh, wow. Actually, schools have a lot of resources and services in their school buildings. Yeah. Um, so we take the RAND technology and we put it into South Eugene High School and we train any and all staff that want to know how to send alerts on behalf of their students for their own school-based resources. Yeah. So it's contained within the high school. It's all, all these alerts are going out for South Eugene High School students, connecting them to the resources that already exist in their building. Incredible. Um, Incredible. So that's the RAN, the, the Rapid Access Network. Um, and then you do, well, what do you do with the things that they said that they wanted or they needed? Yeah. Right? And what we know from doing all these assessments is that mental health and food are always the top two. Yeah. It's always. So didn't, prior to COVID, this was true. After COVID, it's more true. Food and mental health yeah. are always the top. And then after that, it looks really different in each school about what our top priority needs. And sometimes it's a need like um, this policy needs to change mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, or we need, or, you know, we need another refrigerator in the such and such, you mm-hmm. know, whatever it is. And so we, we give a report back to, well, so we didn't do this at South Eugene. I don't know why <laughs> it wasn't until two years ago when um, one of my team members said, why aren't we asking students these questions? I was like, oh my God, why aren't we asking students? Why aren't we? 
We've been asking them all along. Why are we asking them now? (laughs) Aren't we asking them? Uh Oh my gosh. And so we developed a little lesson plan that basically uh, has the students go their homework as we give them a scenario that will say something like, um, your your best friend um, is telling you that they don't have enough food in their house. How might you help her? Can you mm-hmm. find that resource in your school? So mm-hmm. we have a list of resources. We already know what their resources are. Sure. So scenarios are based on things that we already know that they could go get. And uh, then the next day they come back and we talk about who did you ask? Did you find what you needed? What was that experience like? Yeah. Um, and what do you, same thing, kind of like, what do you wish you had? It's this class discussion at that point. Nat and I have talked a lot about this too, that recently, especially like there's coming off of the pandemic, there's a lot of resources that are needed in the community for kids and for adults. But if we're talking about resources and services that are needed for kids, the easiest place, the most efficient place to administer those services is through schools. And at some point, the school becomes a community center that happens to focus on learning. But all of these different people that are trying to get access to these kids in order to give them the services that they need. And when we deliver those services through schools, kids are more likely to see them through and to actually complete them. Okay, so by developing the RAN, 15th night has really busted through a giant barrier, Mm -hmm. which is not only to identify the list of services available, both in school buildings, but as well as in the community. Yes, right. But they've taken it a step further by empowering educators with with the ability to alert those service providers directly when a student needs help, needs their support. Exactly. Last year, they had 640 alerts go out for students requesting support. That's 640 requests students may not have made in the first place or without the RAN, let alone had fulfilled. Exactly. That's huge. That's such a big deal. And at this point in our conversation, we asked Megan about the ways that she's seen mental health providers engage in the building, like physically in the building. She shared how one district has added mental health professionals in schools as staff members, along with how a couple of organizations have made more direct partnerships with those high schools. And all of that is so great. And they're all providing services and support that students need. And we also know that the opportunity is there to take those partnerships one step further by integrating those services more directly in our school, like actually putting people from those places on our teams who are making decisions that affect the student outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And that is where the interconnected systems framework comes in. So. We invited Kelly Perales, a co-director of the Midwest PBIS Network and an implementer partner with the Center on PBIS to join us next because we had questions about how how ISF and PBIS work together. Totally. And Kelly was the one that was going to be able to help us out and figure it out. Yes, illuminate us all, Kelly. Well, hey, Kelly, thanks for being here today. 
Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. Nad and I have been doing some reading and researching about the interconnected systems framework, which we are only going to refer to now as ISF. Yeah, it's a it's a mouthful. Otherwise, last little syllables. So, um, we're talking to you today about that. We had a, a lot of questions for you. So, um, first, the first thing we wanted to start with is where did this idea come from? To uh, what was the problem that you all were looking to solve, or someone was looking to solve, and why was this particular thing the way to solve it? Yeah, and it was actually a group of leaders from our center on PBIS, as well as the National Center for School Mental Health, who began coalescing around concerns for not only acting out problem behavior in school, but also kids who had high rates of anxiety, depression. Uh, We are learning a lot more about the impact of trauma. Mm -hmm. And there was also the pieces that we knew Um, we were maybe missing that in PBIS, it seemed like uh, schools do really well at tier one, kind of know what to do for kids one at a time, but struggle with uh, targeting certain aspects of supports for kids at tier two Um, or missing kids who maybe are suffering in silence in schools, those kids with the internalizing concerns. Right. And on the school mental health side, it was knowing that providing mental health services to kids during the school day can be beneficial, making easier access, cutting down on some of the things that get in the way. Yet it was mostly being provided in a disconnected way from what was happening in schools. And so this really large, actually, group of thought partners came together and started working through how could we take the benefits of what we do in PBIS and what we do in school mental health and bring them together. Yeah, nice, nice. So what are those? What What is ISF? hmm What's your definition of it? We've been trying to come up with one on our own. I want to hear from you what it is. Well, you know, I'll tell you, the first thing is maybe to say what it's not. And what is something new or different. It's really meant to be a process for leaders with authority to come together and make decisions about how people spend their time, um, policies, funding, how to address confidentiality all using the core features of our evidence-based multi-tiered system of support. And the big messages are we want a single system of delivery so that no matter who is delivering the practice or intervention, so clinician hired by a community mental health partner or a school counselor or social worker, for example, we want decisions to be made by teams um, in schools, in districts, so that people can come together around school and community data to decide what are the issues or challenges for kids and what should be done for all, for some, and for a few. So using data to select the interventions, and again, no matter who facilitates it, having progress monitoring data, having coaches to ensure fidelity of implementation, And so even if you're not employed by the school district, people are coming together on teams to work in that way. And 
it's moving beyond access. You know, I mentioned a few minutes ago, access is important because kids can't benefit from interventions that they don't have access to. However, historically in mental health, that's kind of what we counted. How many kids showed up for their appointments? Um, and so instead we need to say, whatever the presenting problems are, did things get better? Uh, whether that means something decreased or increased, whichever trend we want the data to, to move. Uh, and so access is not enough is kind of one of our big messages that we want right, to see right. improved outcomes and impact for kids. Yes. Um, you know, another piece uh, I already mentioned using a multi-tiered system of support, the final thing that we've been talking about and I don't know if there's any silver lining of the last few years, it's that everyone recognizes that we do have a mental health crisis in our country. And so the other big message that we've coalesced around is that mental health is for all. And we've gotta be creating those safe, predictable, consistent, nurturing environments that support our adults. You know, we've got a workforce capacity issue right now, a shortage of educators and mental health providers. And so we really need to bolster ensuring that adults uh, have what they need for their own mental health and wellness, and then that we equip them not only with professional development, but that ongoing coaching that's needed to help them in their roles uh, in supporting the needs for our students right now. Got you. Kelly, quick question. So I don't know if this is a quick question and we might need to <laughs> put it somewhere else. So you're using data for decision-making um, and you're using data um, initially to figure out which students might need a targeted mental health intervention or is, am I reading this right? In the same way that we look at students that are being successful at tier one, um, but then what data are you looking at? Are you looking at some of the same data to, to well, identify students? Yeah, that's a great clarifying question. I mean, certainly in schools, someone's already looking at attendance and grade right. and discipline. We're saying, let's expand that data. Right. In, both yeah. in school, things like, when else are kids leaving the instructional environment, either mm -hmm. requesting to see a counselor or going down to a nurse maybe with headaches and stomach aches and other somatic complaints. Um, the, encouraging the use of universal screening to identify potential risk. And then it's also other community data. I mean, first of all, what do we have by way of uh, youth perception data? Most states have some sort of, uh, whether it's the YRBS, youth behavior risk screener. <laughs> I might not have that right. You'll edit That's that okay. out, I'm sure. It's my favorite, um, trying to figure out what an acronym is. It is, for. it is, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, youth perception where they're saying by their own, you know, reporting some risk and protective factor okay. concern. Um, mm -hmm. Family surveys about their perception and perspective. And then community data like, what are the rates of kids going to the emergency room for mental health crisis? What are the rates of housing insecurity, food insecurity, unemployment in the community, what other risk and protective factors, you know, where are kids spending their time when they're not in school that can help teams to sort of say, what are we dealing with here, right? Yeah. Do, we, yeah. do we need something for all kids or should we target a certain subset of the population for some extra support? What we do know for sure is we are not going to solve this one kid at a time. The magnitude of need is 
so high. Uh, and we wouldn't do that for academics. You know, we wouldn't say if kids are struggling to read on grade level, let's just hire 12 more reading specialists. Right, that's not, right. That's right. not what's happening. And we can't do that when we're talking about mental health concerns either. You know, I, I think right now there's kind of that's kind of what people are turning to. Let's hire more clinicians. Yes. And no one would argue we don't need more professionals right. yet. I don't know where they're coming from right now. And even if we could hire all the people we desired, it will be insufficient if we don't address the system level work. Yes, I agree. And so when you're talking about a multi-tiered system of support, a lot of the schools that we work with obviously are implementing PBIS. And part of the outcomes, like the definition of this framework is to address mental student mental health Mm -hmm. um, concerns. And so to me, when I was learning about the work that you do, it's like we're taking the the foundational elements of PBIS and those multi-tiered systems of support, and we're deliberately defining the systems, practices, and data related to school mental health so that teams can integrate those into their existing process and get those perspectives at the table Mm -hmm. so that they get a more comprehensive view of what's going on in their building. And they get the added benefit of having someone on the team who has an understanding of the interventions that are available to Mm -hmm. kids and to adults um, in order to get everyone access to the things they need, maybe a little bit more efficiently. Does that seem fair? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it also moves us away from if there is a clinician or other people coming in from the community to provide supports in some way, that it's, you know, this co-located model where maybe someone has a caseload of kids that they see on Tuesday and Thursday, depending on the individual, that's how much communication or collaboration there is with a teacher or parent or others. You know, it's being very intentional about the the shared decision-making, the shared, you know, these are the skills that we're going to teach in this intervention and everybody knows what the words are and what to look for and how to prompt, et cetera, so that there's transference and generalization of those skills into the classroom. Yeah, something that you're, the things that you're saying are really resonating with um, what we heard from Megan and uh, when we talked to her, which is that um, schools are really, they're really community centers and um, where learning happens, but there's also people. I mean, these are whole people that are showing up to these spaces Mm -hmm. that have a whole set of things that they bring with them and resources that they may require. And, um, And so why not bring people who's, very special skill set addresses a specific set of needs into the fold and yep. um, and include them in the process that you already have going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes so a those, lot of sense to me. Those siloed efforts really become part yeah. of a, a teaming effort and part of an overall effort, which I think is, yeah. is critical. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it makes it too, it makes it um, clear that the the supports that the mental health clinician is providing are having an impact on 
the things that the behavior team is looking at or right. that the academic folks right. uh, want to see. So it really, it really just removes any of that filter and says, let's all talk about it in the same room. We're talking right. about it in our individual spaces. Why not come together so that we can learn from each other, but mm-hmm. how we could do this differently or better. Yep. I think that's really smart. <laughs> I think I think you're really smart, Kelly. Well, um, that is a team of a lot of really smart people. <laughs> we think you're all pretty smart. Yeah, <laughs> we do. We do. Something that I was reading because because this is such um, a an area that I do not have a lot of skill talking about or information about. As I was reading some of the articles that you all have written, one of the things that really stuck out for me that seemed to make a big bit of difference is that district level team, that district, what is it? District community leadership team. That's right. And you talk about the work that happens at the district level that then filters down and makes everything that happens at the school level so much work so much better. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I think maybe I'll start with some of the points you were just making, you know, in doing work in this way that we're talking about, it probably can help with efficiencies and effectiveness. And it's really hard to do because yeah. <laughs> it requires change. Yeah. And us as adults, it's very hard for us to change our habits and the way that we're accustomed to doing things and what we're comfortable with. And so we say a lot, we can't leave this to schools alone to figure out. Mm-hmm. And districts don't tell each school in their district, you pick the reading curriculum you want. You decide right, how right. you want to identify kids who need <laughs> extra help with math. That's not what happens. Right. So we have to have the people with authority who are going to be able to support, whether it's clinicians or others who are working in this new way to do their work. Uh, and so what we talk about is that the leadership at the district and community level, they have to come together to make some decisions, ideally first, although things are going to be happening in schools to address you know, crises. And of course, there's yeah. already work happening. They have to organize themselves around if they are going to use the universal screener. What's their process for selecting that instrument and setting up the parameters of consent and how they're going to use the data and all of the things that are connected to that system. Mm-hmm. It really is the leadership who just, you know, they can make decisions about how people spend their time and what decisions they're going to have about confidentiality. That comes up every single time when we're talking with folks about this idea of people coming together in teams to share data and make decisions together. Um, And it's an important topic and we can't let it get in the way of getting kids connected to the care that they need. Right. Right. Um, One of the things that, um, that struck me around that leadership team was uh, decisions related to funding. Mm -hmm. And in the example, the idea that um, a mental health clinician might be in a school making decisions about how they can work with someone or how much time they could related to funding and billable hours. And so to remove that barrier would be a huge thing. It sounds like, because now you've got a district and a state saying to these agencies, look, we're going to set aside this funding and it's for you. And that means that your clinicians can go into the building this many hours and do whatever 
it is that needs to happen to be collaborative in their work. So they can work with teachers, they can work with students, they can work on teams, but that this idea that funding would somehow be this primary sticking point would be a huge problem, right? Because those decisions don't happen quickly. Right. No, and it it absolutely is. Um, You know, in mental health, it's a fee-for-service model. Yes. And so when we do start talking to mental health providers about having a clinician sit on a team, that comes up every time. And if there's not a, you know, client where we can bill for that time, I'm not sure how we're going to make that happen. And so that's when we sort of say, we've got to kick it up a notch. You know, we're talking about here, district and community leaders, and sometimes they have to turn to whom at the state level are the, you know, again, decision makers, the policy makers, the funding streams to, to kind of figure out what needs to shift in order to remove that piece of the puzzle that's getting in the way of what we're describing here. Because you're you're talking about school community partnerships at a totally different level. We're talking about real partnerships and that that leadership um, makes that possible in a different way. Yes. Um, yeah. It's it's not just, oh, we're going to ask this group over here to do this. It's like, no, we're going to be partners in this um, mm-hmm. and bring these two things together. To me, that's so in, so much more inclusive. Um, it's it's really been interesting to to think about that and um, to consider what that looks like, how that looks different than I think traditionally when we talk about community school partnerships like that. To me, this looks different. This looks different. Right. We're not we're talking about true collaboration that's shared decision making as opposed to I tell you what I'm doing. You tell me what you're doing. And then we go back in our corners. and Yes, yes, yes. You said it much more succinctly than I did. (laughs) That's just practice, Matt. That's lots of times of having that same conversation. Because it's true everywhere. I mean, people are doing the best they can with what they know and what they have. It's it's people are well-intentioned. It's just, you know, everybody's in their own kind of world doing their thing. And we're trying to say, I think we could be more efficient and effective here. I'm not sure where to go. I think because the question that I have relates to like what. So what does this look like once you're down at the building level? What does this look like? Because we know about um, teams, right? We talk about teams and using data for decision making all the time over here. It's one of our favorite topics. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, if we're doing this, who do I see that's new at the table? We've talked a little bit about some of the data sources that would be a little bit different that would be coming up um, that would need to get, a, you know, we folded into the conversation. Mm-hmm. So what does this look like in practice? What have you noticed on teams? How do they... How do they work differently in schools where a mental health person is embedded on the team versus not? You know, I think people need to be prepared for in schools when working in this new way. They have to be committed to the long game. You Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. right now I hear from folks all the time. We're constantly responding to crisis. We're constantly putting out fires. We have all these kids with significant need. Yes. And the more people can commit to some time, effort, and energy in bringing a multidisciplinary team together 
to look at data and make decisions in this way that we're talking about, over the long haul, they're going to see a reduction in kind of what they're talking about in terms of crisis because they're able to focus on that continuum of interventions that's going to meet the need of their students over time. And so, you know, I, I think folks have to be ready to roll up their sleeves, get a little uncomfortable, put in some time, effort, and energy, because in the end, they also might be thinking about what are a few things we can do really well that's going to help impact the need, as opposed to schools are pretty quick to say, here's a problem, throw a solution at it. Here's a yeah. problem, throw a solution at it. And then when we ask them to kind of examine what they're doing and what's working and what isn't, it's pretty eye-opening that maybe they're not being, it's that whole idea of working smarter, not harder. Yeah. Maybe there's some opportunities to align, integrate, and even eliminate some things that they're doing currently. Got you. The thing that I that I really liked about some of the research that I was reading related to this is the impact that coaching, good coaching seems to have had on every team, not just schools implementing ISF, but on schools that also were PBIS only or PBIS plus having a mental health yeah. um, professional on staff, but not integrated in their team that everyone from year between year one and year two saw an improvement in their in their practices as a team because they got some really good coaching in between related to turnover. Yeah. And that I would imagine that that just gets to be even more when you're talking about integrating these supports that are, that a coach who understands how this can be helpful and the, the both worlds of things, um, both the school and the mental health side of things. If you've got someone that, that can do the translation for folks and help bring people along and up to speed. Yeah. The impact seems really large. And yeah, and so I, I, I just don't want to lose track of the fact that the coaching that these schools got was significant. You know, yeah. it had a real impact well, on what they were able to do. It's, sure. it's significant. And it, I hate to say it feels required, but it kind of, no, it absolutely should I mean, be. You know, yeah. there's so much happening inside of our schools yes. and it's very easy for schools. You know, we get started at the start of the year and everybody's excited and there's lots of momentum and then lots of stuff happens. And, you know, things that aren't paid attention to or monitored or evaluated kind of get lost in the shuffle while other priorities are coming to the forefront. And again, people have good intentions, yes. yet something's got to give. And so right. it's the coaches who can stay at the table, keep encouraging folks, help support them with whatever facilitation they need to, to move along with that process of, you know, that PDSA cycle, use your data, put a plan in place, check to right. see if you did it. How did it work out? Where do you need that continuous improvement process? And, you know, that... That's really uh, the role ongoing of uh, coaches. And so right. I, I do think it's a really critical piece of the work. I agree. It shows, research shows, doesn't it? That yeah. good coaching leads to sustained implementation over the long right. haul for all right. of those reasons you just mentioned. Yep. So if I'm a, if I'm a school and I'm like, I'm in, I'm all in, I want to do this. <laughs> what do I do? How do I do it? What do I, yeah. what do I, what's my first step? 
where would you recommend I go with this new information? Like we should be doing this. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's of course, go to your leaders, right? To your superintendent or your supervisor, whomever. And it can be helpful to take something with you. So again, I would encourage people to go to the mental health web uh, webpage at pdis.org. There's a little four minute video. We have three fact sheets that are kind of a couple of pages with some really good information. Mm -hmm. Take one of the TA briefs with an example from another school. Um, And the other thing I would say is have some compelling data. You know, schools have a lot of things that, you know, that are mandated by their state departments of education, um, things that they're wrestling with in terms of finding what are they going to have as their priorities. And so they have to see, as well as partners from the community, what's in this for me? How is changing the way we work or finding opportunities to collaborate in this way going to be useful to us? How's it going to help us help our students? Uh, and so sometimes having a compelling data point can, you know, together with here's some information about mm-hmm. the ISF mm-hmm. can help leaders understand the value in why they should consider going on this journey. Yeah. I think too, it's, it's not an add-on. It's something we right known if you're if you're a school that is implementing positive behavior support we've always known mental health needed to be a part of that we're reconfiguring yes. what that looks like to make it more effective and efficient so it's not a it's not an add-on it's like let's do this a little bit differently let's make this something that's more efficient and effective and so yeah. I think thinking about it that way and presenting it that way can be really helpful when you're talking to people who are as we know, educators feeling overwhelmed, overtaxed. Um, it really is a, about working smarter, not harder. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And it's also, I think, a really nice place to give such a large problem a starting place, right? Mm-hmm. That there's that there's a there's a way that we can take all of the things that we're already doing and f- make them fit seamlessly into what we're doing on paper, right? That we actually need to now work toward committing actual time and energy with people into making this work in practice, but that this gives us a place to start. If we're feeling overwhelmed by the impact of the last few years and the the things that we're seeing related to mental health in our students and our staff, that this gives us a nice entry point into then developing, like you said, over the long haul, what is the solution going to look like? Right. 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 I really appreciate this, Kelly. This has been so helpful into making this piece of the puzzle come together for us. We appreciate your time and all of the work that you guys continue to do. All right. Awesome. Exciting. Very exciting. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs)